0: Welcome to Digital Jung, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss the challenges that confront us on the path of psychological growth, and how we might respond to them. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. serious problems in life, however, are never fully solved. If ever they should appear to be so, it is a sure sign that something has been lost. The meaning and purpose of a problem seem to lie not in its solution, but in our working at it incessantly. This alone preserves us from stultification and petrifaction. It's good to have time off. It's good to rest. As I return to this podcast from my summer hiatus, I find myself reflecting on the pleasures and the challenges of creative work and on the rhythms of work and rest. I get a deep satisfaction from producing this podcast. It feels like a privilege and a gift to be able to work with this material, to reflect on and to speak about the symbolic life and the experience of meaning. I've heard from many listeners who tell me that they have been touched by this work, that they have found meaning, and resonance in one aspect or another of these reflections, and that is truly gratifying. Still, it cannot be denied that creative work is hard work. And despite its gratifications, it can, at times, be very taxing. And so it was good to get some time off. It was good to rest. I will admit to feeling some relief at not having to confront the immensity of the blank page, not having to stare down my doubts and my insecurities about having anything worthwhile to say, not having to wrestle with the intimation of an idea until it deigns to bless me and reveal its secrets. I felt a genuine happiness at having nothing to do and in really letting myself do nothing at all. Now in episode 30 from season one, Knowing and Not Knowing, I suggested that rest is essential to creativity and that is undoubtedly true. However, it's important to recognize that a good deal of any phenomenon depends on the quality of our imagination regarding it, right? Everything is infused with a particular fantasy that we bring to it, and the nature of that fantasy determines, to a great extent, our experience of the thing in question. And the experience of rest is one example of this. It makes a great deal of difference whether we imagine rest as primarily being in the service of our work, particularly creative work, or whether we see rest as the ultimate goal, the end point of all our work. The experience of rest is very easily assimilated by the fantasy of what we might call the end of all problems. And this fantasy can take many forms, living for the weekend, the search for the endless summer, the countdown to retirement. We might daydream of winning the lottery or in some other way, hitting it big. It's the fantasy of finally being free of all cares and having all one's needs quickly and easily met. And this is a common fantasy that just about every one of us indulges in from time to time at least, and its frequency is fueled by an archetypal energy, one that the Jungian analyst Mario Jacobi identifies as the longing for paradise in his book of the same name. This image and idea is found in virtually every culture in the form of a myth of some long-past golden age or of some future heavenly realm. Spurred on by this archetypal longing, We may dream of a day when we can set aside our work once and for all and have an abundance of free time to do whatever we please. Now, it may or may not be a surprise to learn that this fantasy is not all that it's cracked up to be. A recent study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that not only was having too little free time correlated with a decreased sense of well-being, so too was having too much free time. Free time, it turns out, eventually reaches a point of diminishing returns, a kind of saturation point what we might imagine to be a problem-free existence all too soon becomes a problem of its own. And none of this would have surprised Carl Jung. As we heard in the opening quote, for Jung, the absence of problems is not a boon, but rather the loss of something vital. The serious problems in life He writes, are never fully solved. If ever they should appear to be so, it is a sure sign that something has been lost. Now, by problems, what Jung is referring to is the inevitable and unresolvable tensions that come with psychological existence. In general, these take the form of conflicts between our instinctual nature, our appetites, and our ideals, our values, and our aspirations. They're the tensions, for instance, between our self-interest and our concern for others, between our longing for life and the fear of death. Between the pull for comfort and certainty and the simultaneous inner demand to grow and develop. And these tensions are a consequence of being conscious. Consciousness puts us at odds with ourselves. As conscious beings, we don't merely act automatically responding to our immediate impulses, we also reflect on those actions and respond to a set of deeper impulses. Consciousness brings problems because as the psychologist and writer Francis Wicks notes, with consciousness comes the necessity of choice. In her book, The Inner World of Choice, Wicks, whose work was deeply influenced by Jung, wrote, The art of living is, in its essential meaning, a development and transformation of the power of inward choice. It is, of all creative arts, the most difficult and the most distinguished. To be fully human, Wicks is saying, is to take on the responsibility of consciousness, making active choices for our lives and not just letting ourselves be blown about by the winds of fate or by the accidents that result from unconsciousness. And it means accepting the consequences of those choices For with choice, of course, comes the possibility of making a mistake, of going wrong, of getting lost. And to avoid these consequences, we might put off choosing altogether, opting for the safety of a known, if somewhat smaller, world instead. We want to have certainties and no doubts, results and no experiments, writes Jung, without even seeing that certainties can arise only through doubt and results only through experiment. Wicks and Jung both agree that our refusal of the difficult work of consciousness and its demand for our active participation, our choosing, is deadening. For wicks, such a refusal puts life in danger of becoming a repetitious round, a treadmill of duty, or a merry-go-round of meaningless activity. And according to Jung, the meaning and purpose of a problem seem to lie not in its solution but in our working at it incessantly this alone preserves us from stultification and petrifaction so why should this be the case well because it's in the struggle in the encounter with life even in our going-off course, that we learn and grow and develop. Jung puts it this way, Every problem brings the possibility of a widening of consciousness, but also the necessity of saying goodbye to childlike unconsciousness. In myths and fairy tales, and in fact, in all good drama, right down to our present-day movies and TV shows, this pairing of difficulty with the development of new potential and new growth is ubiquitous. It is, in many ways, the essence of drama. So here I want to share the first part of a fairy tale called Ferdinand the Faithful, in which this universal idea, the potential born of difficulty, is stated right in the very first sentence. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there lived a man and a woman, who so long as they were rich had no children, but when they were poor, they had a little boy. They could, however, find no godfather for him, so the man said he would just go to another place to see if he could get one there. As he went, a poor man met him, who asked him where he was going. He said he was going to see if he could get a godfather, that he was poor so no one would stand as godfather for him. Oh, said the poor man, you are poor, and I am poor. I will be godfather for you. But I am so ill off that I can give the child nothing. Go home and tell the nurse that she is to come to the church with the child. When they all got to the church together, the beggar was already there, And he gave the child the name of Ferdinand the Faithful. So here we have a story that starts with what I would suggest is a pretty unambiguous statement. Wealth, it seems to be saying, is a condition of sterility and poverty is one of fertility. Once upon a time, there lived a man and a woman who so long as they were rich had no children. But when they were poor, they had a little boy. And then it goes on to amplify this idea by stating that the only person who would stand Godfather for the child is a poor man, a beggar, Not only does poverty set the conditions for the new birth, but furthermore, it is apparently the means by which one becomes connected to the divine, which in Jungian terms would mean the connection to the self, to one's wholeness. And this is what is symbolized by the poor man becoming the child's godfather. Now, Wealth, of course, doesn't necessarily mean the literal possession of money here. Rather, the condition of being wealthy is being used as a symbol for what many might consider to be a very counterintuitive idea, the sterility of having too much. And the inference here is that To be able to have whatever we want, whenever we want it, is actually a psychological and spiritual dead end. We saw this earlier in the study from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology about the detrimental effects of too much free time. Interestingly, the language used in that paper is filled with images usually associated With money. For instance, it speaks of an abundance of free time, or of being temporally impoverished, or having discretionary time, meaning time that can be spent as one wishes. And of course, poverty in the story is not about the literal condition of being poor either. Poverty has a rich symbolic resonance, most fully developed in the mystical and religious traditions. It expresses the state of one's spiritual condition, not so much in terms of lack, but more in the sense of one's readiness to receive the fullness of the divine realm. Poverty is understood as an attitude of letting go of those things that are commonly perceived as having value to make space for that which possesses higher value, prioritizing the meaningful over the material. And we can speculate then that the condition of poverty is emphasized at the beginning of our story because. It's just that that lays the foundation for the main character Ferdinand's nature, that of being faithful. He is the one, in other words, who is meant to live a life of meaning. The Jungian analyst Adolf Guggenbull Craig describes something similar to these symbols of wealth and poverty using the language of psychological dynamics and giving them a slightly different symbolic dress. He differentiates between two opposing goals that motivate certain aspects of human activity. And these two goals he calls well-being and salvation. Well-being, he writes, has to do with the avoidance of unpleasant tensions, with striving for the possession of a physical sense of comfort, relaxed and pleasant. So this is the drive to happiness, free of anxieties about one's safety and one's existence, with sufficient nourishment and pleasure, and the possibility, he says, of satisfying some of the so-called material wishes without inordinate effort. Salvation, on the other hand, he describes as something that has to do not simply with a happy, relaxed, earthly existence. Salvation involves the question of life's meaning. And this question can never be ultimately answered in the quest for salvation a confrontation with suffering and the problems of existence are an essential part of the picture so just like with the conditions of wealth and poverty in the tale of ferdinand the faithful well-being and salvation lead in very different directions As Guggenbull Craig explains, the experience of well-being is often represented in symbolic stories by islands of bliss and happiness. They are lands where everything is too good to be true. And it is. Seldom on these islands, he writes, is one able really to find oneself and to come to one's own soul. Salvation, which is not necessarily meant in the religious sense, though it is meant to have a kind of religious resonance, is the work of struggling with life in order to come to one's soul. Guggenbull Craig connects the image of salvation with the Jungian concept of individuation. A Jungian approach often may attend to the goals of well-being, that is, to a satisfying adaptation to life. But it also casts its eye further to the work of individuation. This, he says, does not necessarily concern mental health, well-being, or a sense of happiness. Put simply, Individuation is the process of becoming oneself, of finding one's own authentic way. It is the inner imperative for growth, and it often proceeds through struggle and involves wrestling with life's intractable problems. And for the takeaway here, I want to circle back to the discussion of the challenges of creative work with which we started this episode. There's a kind of beautiful agony to the act of creativity. By its very nature, it brings us to the personal edges of our own being and even at times to the edges of what it means to be a human being. In my own creative work, I'm often tempted to imagine that if I'm struggling with something, that means I'm failing, that I don't know what I'm doing. Certainly, it must mean that I have yet to arrive at that imagined place where I finally get it, where there's no more insecurity, no more doubt, no more wrong turns, that I'm not still learning how to do this thing called living. But of course, I am still learning. And truth be told, if I'm lucky, that learning will never stop, even if it means wrestling with problems that can never finally be solved. We don't need to have everything worked out before we can begin to live meaningful and creative lives. We don't need to have all our difficulties resolved. We don't even need to feel ready. We just need to begin. When Jung says that the real problems in life are never fully solved, he's reminding us that it's not about where we go, where we get to, that matters, but that we are going, that we're on our way. So, as good as it is to get time off, as good as it is to rest, I welcome the return to the tensions of creative work. I want to allow myself to get curious about what comes next. What discoveries are yet to be made? In what new ways will I be called to learn and to grow? And I hope that you'll take up that attitude of curiosity with me. Take up your own going. Find your own way. So let me close here with a poem by Wendell Berry. For those times of inevitable discouragement that are bound to happen on the path of meaningful and creative work. It's called Our Real Work, and it speaks directly to our theme. And it goes like this. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious. Living a Symbolic Life available from Chiron Publications Thanks for listening and take good care